What's up, everybody? Hope everyone is safe and healthy and having a great day. And I want to welcome you to the Justice Sec conversation. If you're a returner, welcome back. If you're here for the first time, well, I hope you enjoy the ride. Today's episode, episode 38, is with New York Times bestselling author Harlan Coben. And before I share with you why I wanted to chat with Harlan, just a reminder, I'd really appreciate if you would consider subscribing, commenting, liking, or really just taking the link and sharing it with your friends and family and whomever you think might be interested in this conversation or anything else on the channel. I've got the Justice Sec conversation series. I've got interviews with people concerning the current events of the sports world. I've got my own commentaries and more. So feel free to surf around. Would certainly appreciate the feedback and the support. So I'm probably like a lot of kids. I really love reading right now, but as a kid, I didn't like reading because I was always told you got to read this book and you got to read this many pages. And I'm not a fast reader. So those homework assignments were always daunting. But around high school, a buddy of mine introduced me to the book Deal Breaker, written by Harlan Coben, which was the first of many installments in the Myron Bolitar character series. And reading that book was a different experience than any other book I had really tried to read since maybe lower school, uh, elementary school those days. I loved it. And it was a realization that if I get to pick the book or if I'm interested in the content or the story, reading's awesome. And so I credit Harlan Coben as the author who reminded me or reintroduced me to reading. And it was a hoot for me to chat with Harlan. I've exchanged Twitter messages with him over the years, but this was my very first conversation with him. And Harlan now has his work adapted to film and to TV shows. A lot of his books uh, are available as TV series on Netflix. The movie Tell No One. The, the French movie Tell No One is a, a Harlan Coben book, and there's certainly more in the works for Harlan, uh, not only in, in print, but on the screen. And it was just really awesome for me to learn about Harlan's story, his process, and more. So here you go. Just a Set Conversation, episode 38, with New York Times bestselling author Harlan Coben. All right, Harlan, the... First question I always like to ask people, and you can take it in whatever direction you'd like, but when you think back to your childhood, what are some of your influences, maybe memories that stand out, hobbies? Uh, you know, you don't have to answer all of those, but what are the things that, that really pop to mind when you think back to your childhood? Oh, sheesh. Um, <laughs> I, I, I actually had a fairly um, ordinary childhood. I mean, I had, uh, I had two brothers and, and really great parents. Uh, grew up in a middle-class suburb. Um, you know, there's a saying by Flaubert, uh, to quote somebody weirdest Flaubert, but Flaubert says, um, be regular and bourgeois in your life so you can be violent and original in your work. I think that <laughs> kind of applies to me. Well, what were some of your, your interests and in, in hobbies? Uh, you know, I, I know sports are a big part of, uh, you know, I guess one of your, your book series, which we're going to get into. So were you a sports fan or not a sports fan? What, what were some of the things you were, were drawn to? I was, a, yeah, I mean, I played a lot of sports. Basketball ended up being my main sport. There was a little kid, you know, it was more baseball probably and even tennis, but I played college basketball um, for four years at Amherst college. 
Uh, so basketball would be my main one, but I, you know, I played baseball. I'm actually proud to say I'm in the Little League uh, Hall of Fame. Um, I was put in there not because of my great prowess, I think, as a baseball player, where I was strictly mediocre, but um, the former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, and I were on the same team. And I think when Little League Baseball saw that, they thought, oh, it's a cool way of getting two guys in <laughs> at one time. And here's what's amazing, by the way, slightly off topic, but maybe not, but Little League Baseball had our sign-up sheets from the early 1970s. Chris and I were on the same team in 1972, and they had the actual sign-up sheets with our parents' signatures on them from 1972 out at Williamsport. They invited us to get to throw at the first pitch at the uh, World Little League World Series um, back, I think it was uh, 2013 or something like that. Oh, wow. Isn't that that's, amazing? Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, I, I don't even, like, I... I don't even think my dad has like significant uh, pieces of memorabilia from, uh, you know, my time playing sports. I can't believe that they have that sheet. I would have figured it would have been thrown away the minute they were done with it. Exactly. And they somehow had the baseball picture from my team back then also, which I posted uh, my photograph on my Instagram from when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 um, playing little league baseball. But yeah, I mean, I was a big, I was a big sports guy. I've always been, uh, a big sports guy. Now, I was thinking, and I don't know if some of your older people out there will remember this. When we were kids, of course, we didn't have ESPN or any of that. The only way you saw players from other teams was the one or two times they would play, you know, in your ballpark or whatever. And maybe you would get set to 11 o'clock and watch four seconds of clips on the local news that would maybe show one or two away games. So a lot of our perceptions were based on our baseball cards, right? Yeah. I don't know if you're old enough for that or not. Well, but so we all have these baseball cards, and they. And I start thinking someone should do like a book on how we started to see them as the baseball cards because some of them had really weird ass poses. <laughs> I, they, you know, they, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so I'm I'm a little younger, but my brothers are are a lot older than I am, and that was like my, I think that was my first introduction was going through their card collection and like one of my party tricks to this day is the ability to, you know, you name an athlete, and I, I have a pretty good percentage of being able to identify their college because of the cards, because that was always on the back of the card, you know? Yeah. And and it's it's in, it's interesting how cards influence people. Like, I, I was able to see, you know, I grew up in the, the sports center era, and so, you know, I, I never had those challenges as far as familiarizing myself, but... My when I th there's still to this day when I think of like certain 90s athletes, the first thing that pops into my head is not some highlight uh, was not seeing them in person is their card. And I can almost remember the, you know, the action shot or the pose or whatever it might be. So it's interesting hearing you say that, because I, I think sports cards have such a, a funny hold on people, uh, especially when they remember them from an early age. Yeah, and, 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 you know, you got cards. Same ones always seem to come up, like guys who weren't popular but had weird poses. So, you know, I never saw the guy play or even remember anything about his career, but I can still remember, like, Bill McCool's card because his name was McCool and he was trying to look cool <laughs> in the card. There's all those, and there was something like stupid facts in the back, you know, like Bob likes green vegetables only, you know, like, that had nothing to do <laughs> yeah. with anything. Uh, so it was. It was a. You know, it was just a different. Uh, we're, we're sounding like old men. Next thing we're going to be talking about before they had uh, lights at ball ballparks. Don't go back that far. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, 
I've written a lot about how, especially with baseball, how so many memories, you know, the father-son stuff especially, um, but so many memories from your childhood surround baseball, the smell of grass. If I ask a guy to remember his first days at school, he probably won't. But if I ask you to remember the first time you put a mitt on, the first time you entered a major league ballpark, the first time you, you, you ran and you felt the lime under your feet that, that, that do fair to foul, and you'll remember all that, right? You'll remember all that. It's an amazing thing, the sights and sounds and smells that we relate to baseball, even if we never played it, even if we were never good at it. There's just something very American about that whole experience. I don't know if if this would apply to you, but so growing up in, in, in the DFW area, I grew up going to Rangers games, and for whatever reason, there was something, and, and, and I know ballparks are just uh, constructed differently, but when you, you got into the old Globe Life Park, which you know this year was supposed to be the first year uh, in the, the new ballpark for the Rangers, but you'd get in, and, and then the concourse was so large uh, and packed with people. Even if it wasn't packed with people, you couldn't see the field. Uh, it, it was not, and that was one of the things I know they wanted to change so that when you went out and got food, you didn't totally miss the action, but there was something really special about getting to your section and then entering the tunnel. And then as you get closer and closer to the field, you see more and more of the field and and that first sight of the field for that particular game, when you got to go, that, that was always really special to me. I don't know if, if you have similar memories, but I always, you know, it was great to be there. It was great when the, the ticket taker took your ticket, but I didn't feel like I was there until I actually saw the field and I saw the, the, the people on the field. That was always a really special sight for me. Yeah, no question about it. I, I think the kids today will, will say the same thing about the new state. I think the new stadiums are great, by the way. And I think the kids will say the same thing. Part of it is like when you go back to your high school and all the, or your, especially your elementary school and you realize, man, this hallway is really small. You know, it's a perspective of your, it's your perspective as a as a little kid, and my guess is the little kids um, will still have slightly different, but that same kind of sense of awe. You know, I grew up the stadium that I first went to was Yankee Stadium, and yet the Yankees stunk back then. But of course, had the history and the magic and the ghosts of Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio and Mantle. Well, Mantle a little bit even when I was very young was just finishing up his career. So all of that was, was, was located in this building. It was, it was a museum. It was a haunted house in the most positive way. It was a historic, it was like going through the Roman ruins or something like that. The Colosseum in Rome, um, you know, the Yankee stadium had just so much of that going on and that Memorial park out in center field that even back then was just a few things but you could see it from where, where you were sitting. All that magic, that nostalgia that gets thrown into baseball that makes it the magic that I think make, you know, is part of what we, what we kind of love about it. All right, Harlan, you mentioned Chris Christie, and I was going to ask about him later on, but since you already broached the subject, I, I, I know that sometimes when you have two people of, of note that grew up together, played on the same teams, you know, whatever the case is, people like to manufacture a friendship that maybe – wasn't as strong as, as it really was. What was your relationship with Chris Christie like growing up? And were you guys really close, or did you just happen to play on the same team? No, we were good friends. Um, it, we met 
about it and I wrote an essay on it on the Little League field. Um, I had been ill that year and I came back to the team quite late. And even back then, I tell the story when I got there, you know, you're a little nervous. I don't know. I didn't really know a lot of the team members hadn't been there all season. And that Chris, his father was the coach, came over and was like, oh, Harlan, welcome. And introduced himself, and, you know, like a politician, frankly, and <laughs> dragged me around and introduced me to everybody. And in seventh grade, uh, we were in the same homeroom and had all the same classes. All th- we were in the same grade all through school. In my senior year of high school, Chris was president of the student of the, of the senior class, and I was president of the student council. So we've known each other a long time. I, I, um, I was in a room when he heard he had won the the nomination for governor. I was in the room when he actually um, won uh, as governor both times. So um, we've known each other a long time. So I guess if he was involved in school politics, then maybe was that something you you saw in him? Like, hey, this this is a, a guy, not necessarily the specific roles, but this is a guy who's got a future in politics, or was it just more for him something that was fun to do while he was progressing through school? No, no, no. We Our high school class, which is 600 people, so it was a pretty big high school class, maybe not by Texas standards, but by New Jersey standards, 600 in the class is a lot. And I would think most people would have said, if you were to vote on which person would go into politics, it would have been Chris. I was more practicing what he later preached, which was I did nothing. I was more laissez-faire government. I was a president of student council. No one would have guessed that I would go into politics because I wasn't very, wasn't very good at the politics. And I, and I was really lazy. I, I, you know, it looked great on my, on my uh, college tra- transcript and all of that. Um, but I didn't do much while Chris was quite active and, and really kind of enjoyed it much more um, than I did. Growing up, did you enjoy writing or, or reading, or was this not something? I, I think I read that when you went to Amherst, it was late in your time there where you decided this was maybe something you wanted to pursue. But were when you look back, was it was were those two things hobbies of yours growing up? Writing was not a hobby of mine growing up. I mean, I was a pretty good writer in school. But nothing. I was better at math. My math SAT score was 200 points higher than my than my verbal 200 400. No. Um, <laughs> uh, it, so it, it was it, it it was something that came to me later. I was actually much better in math, but I think that's actually helped me with the books that I write, where I'm able to plot things out and see the twists and turns and the ways to keep you up um, all night. And because I get bored easily, I think the books and the TV shows on Netflix. Are, are similar in, in, in that you, have, you, you can't put them down. You, you have to keep reading. Um, I'm terrified of, of boring you. Uh, I always look at myself like uh, we're a caveman sitting around the campfire. And if I bore you, someone's going to pick up a mallet and whack me over the head with it for being bore, boring. So I write, you know, the, my books are like that. Uh, the TV shows like The Stranger on Netflix is like that. Uh, I, at least I hope so. That's my goal anyway. Well, okay, so I'm going to tell you something, and I, I don't know that I've directly shared this with you. I, you know, for people listening, I've bugged the crap out of Harlan on Twitter. With the, I've slid into his DMs the last couple of years. But you, I, when I grew up, and I think I was probably like a lot of kids, uh, at least around my age, I, I associated reading with the assigned readings you got from school. You know, whether it was a textbook or, uh, you know, they're, they're forcing you to read a, a book that, maybe you don't enjoy, or at least they're forcing you to read it at a pace. And I was always a slow reader, but the first book, 
I guess the first book I really enjoyed, I was really young, was I read Holes. But it wasn't until I read Deal Breaker, which is, is a part of the Myron Bolitar series, which, which we'll get into, that I really learned that I actually loved reading and that it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't as painful when you got to choose what to read as opposed to someone telling you what to read. And, and I probably missed out on some really compelling books that were assigned by school, but it was something like, you know, well, if, you know, Mrs. Smith is telling me to read it, I'm, I'm not going to read it. I'll, I'll do spark notes or something, but deal breaker. I'll never forget was I was in high school and a buddy of mine was like, you got to read this book. It's great. And I read it. And from that point on, I think I've, I've, I learned to love reading. And I guess I, I'm curious as, as I sit here and I tell you that you had that influence on me, who, who was the person, the author, or was there a book that you recall had that sort of influence on you? Uh, it was a lot. First of all, thank you. I mean, it's really, it's really kind and it's really what I aim for. I can't tell you how many, uh, God, it always sounds you get to talk about yourself like this. But I can't tell you how many messages I get from guys, especially guys who are probably listening to your podcast or sports guys. Said, You're the only author I read, like you and maybe Lee Child and a couple others. But um, that's kind of, you know, I, lo- I love being the guy who's read by people who don't necessarily read a lot. I mean, that's, that's you know, it's really flattering. And that's really part of what, I'm, what I want to do is to give people that, that sort of compelling experience. Um, it's you know it's been really sort of interesting to see. There's a lot. I mean, there's too many books. I, I grew up. I actually was a fairly big reader when I was a kid. Not huge, but a big reader. I loved when I was a kid the C.S. Lewis Narnia series. I loved The Wrinkle in Time, Madeline Lengel. Um, I loved a lot of those. Kind of loved the the Roald Dahl books like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Matilda and, and all those sort of things. So I went on Matilda. That was after my day. But a lot of those books um, I grew up with. And, and really had a strong interest in. All right, so uh, you go to Amherst, and that that's, uh, as I referenced earlier, I, I think I read that it was at Amherst where you really were drawn to writing, and, and that's when you, you kind of got the bug. What what was the event, or what were the sequence of events that maybe led you down that path? Well, it was, um, you know, I was at Amherst, and then in the summer I had a job working in Spain as a tour guide. Not because I'm a brilliant linguist, but because my grandfather <laughs> owned the travel agency. It was nepotism, <laughs> pure and simple. And I was terrible at it. As I'm, I, I, a lot of things in my life I realized I'm terrible at, and that's what helped me find where I am now. And I said, wow, I should write, an ex- I should write a book about this weird experience of how Americans behave on vacation back in the, this is 1982 or something like that, 83. And I did. I, I came back and I started to write. And I just wrote an entire novel, like sitting in my dorm in college, my senior year, junior year maybe. And um, it was a terrible novel. It was really awful. But I got the bug from that. You know, to, to, we're in COVID time period. I got the virus, if you will, from that. And I started to write what I love, which I call the novel of immersion, that book you take on vacation, but you don't want to leave your hotel room because you can't put the damn thing down. That's that's the book I always loved, the book I that. that feeling when I had it and I read Mar- you know, Marathon Men by William Goldman, you know, where you just, no matter what, you could put a gun to my head and I couldn't put this book down. And I remember subconsciously probably thinking, wow, if you can make a career out of doing that, what a cool job that would be. And so that's how it started. Okay. So 
you referenced the the TV stuff. I just want to make sure that uh, you know people listening don't have to uh, Google all of this on their own, and we'll, we'll definitely reference a lot of this uh, as we progress. But if you're at home, there are three shows on Netflix that uh, that that Harlan uh, helped develop: The Stranger, Safe, and The Five, and then the the new book, which I finished in. Gosh, I don't know how. Uh, I think like a week, which for me, that's as slow as a reader as I am. Finishing a book in a week is is uh, like record speed. But The Boy from the Woods uh, is out. That's the newest book. If you're like me and you, you read pretty much everything that, that Harlan's written, uh, I highly recommend that. And you've talked about, I guess, what'd you say? You said novel of immersion. Was that the phrase yeah. you used? Okay. Yep. So how did you learn to build a story like that because every book of yours I've read is, is like that. I, I get really frustrated when I've got something that forces me to, uh, you know, put the bookmark in where I, I guess not, not asking you to, to provide us with a workshop here, but like, what are, what are the things that, that helped you understand how to construct that? Well, one is if I'm bored, you're going to be bored. I'm, I'm, I'm my toughest critic. I'm my toughest editor. Um, and I try to make, um, there's a Elmore Leonard, who was a great writer and you probably saw the movie get shorty or out of sight uh, yeah. that he did. And, um, in the T, oh, God, the TV show, well, get shorty TV show also. Now. Um, he had a quote where he said, I try to cut out all the parts you'd normally skip, which is brilliant writing advice. So I really do. It's not like I can't have descriptions or themes. You have to have all that, but each word, every paragraph, every sentence, every word, I have to make sure it matters. I can't just say to somebody, the grass is long. You know, no, I have to say, the grass is tall enough to go on the adult rides at Six Flags. You know, some way of making it everything that you say slightly more compelling, more gripping. And I think that's really the key. And part of that, you know, part of that is learning, but part of that's natural. I mean, you know, it's like... we, we do is you know, there are some things that are innate and some things are just naturally good at. I'm not naturally good at very many things. <laughs> I, I can give you a list of what I'm not good at. It's part, one of the reasons why I have this as a job, I really couldn't do and my, most other jobs, but I'm good at making stuff up. I'm good at making it compelling and knowing how to, to hold your attention to a story. Is that a marketable skill? Only, in the, only right now and, and in that field. Anything else, I would be in big trouble. Okay, so, you know, you said if I'm bored, you're bored. And this is always one of the things that I've been most curious about. And, and maybe I'm, I'm influenced by, as I mentioned, I, I don't read at, at, at record speed. But how many times do you read over a book you write before it's, you know, you, you're ready to, to publish it? I do a lot of rewriting while I'm writing. So, for example, the key to writing is to write. Um, is to turn off the voice in your head that tells you you're terrible, which all writers have. Um, a great writer named uh, Anne Lamott wrote a chapter about writing where she called, quote, the shitty first draft. That is, give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. It's almost like I compare it to diamond mining, right? So if you're out in the middle of you know, someplace and, you, and you're diamond mining, you, the, the rock you get from the ground is really this big, ugly thing, but that's where the value is, right? And then your second thing, then you clean it up and you sharpen it, and you shape it, and you make it into something people want to wear. But the first ugly rock is both ugly but valuable. So it's the same thing when I write. Um, I constantly am rewriting and working on the things I did the day before. Sometimes it's like getting a writing start for what I'm going to do. 
every 75 pages, maybe I go back and I reread the whole book again. Um, and then when I finish it, I usually set it aside for a week and then I'll go back to it again. So it's a lot. I don't know any writer who doesn't rewrite a lot. Um, there's one guy, but none of us like him. So <laughs> it's just part of the process. I think you have to rewrite. I tell the kids this too, like, right. in the essays you're, you're telling your kids probably at home, like, you know, the kid through this essay, when I was a kid, he used to do it on yellow paper, then he did a final one on white paper. Boy, do I need more than just two drafts to get it right. Um, I need a lot more than that. And then, you know, honing it, I do it again, then I get a, a copy written, uh, a copy edited thing where the copy editor goes through and finds all the typos and points out my mistakes. Like, you had a guy go to bed on Tuesday, he woke up on Saturday. I was, well, maybe he drank a lot, but no, it was just that I, moved, I missed the days, all that sort of thing. It's a whole process to, to create a book. Okay, so speaking of the process, I, I'm curious uh, if you were to go back and, and assess your early books, your early uh, you know pieces of work versus where you are now, have you evolved, improved? Are, are there things that you would really be able to pinpoint and say, I am so much better at this or I do this so much differently now than when I first started? Yeah, that's a good question. It's hard for me to be the judge of that. I mean, there's also certain things that I'm probably not as good at, um, certain energies, certain experiences of my life that I already have used that I can't use again. So I think it works both ways. But mostly the problem is when you, it's like the people who are out there listening, like, remember that essay you wrote maybe in high school or college you thought was brilliant? And now you stumble across it now and you read it and go, oh my God, this is such shit. It's the same kind of thing when it comes to, uh, my, my earlier books, I can see all the scenes. It's not that, it's just that, what did that young kid know, right? The idea is you look back on it yourself 20, 30 years ago, you're kind of a little bit cringy or embarrassed, right? How you felt about something, how you thought about something. You will hopefully change and evolve. So the same thing with early books. When I'm doing these um, shows for Netflix, I have to go back and reread old stuff. And that's really kind of hard because sometimes I'm reading going, wow, this is really not very good. And other times I'm like, huh. This isn't bad. Like, where am I going? I don't, I don't even know where I'm going with this particular um, twist. I have a new show coming on Netflix very soon called The Woods, which I wrote in around 2004, 2005. So when I was reading it, I'm like, eh, you know, there's things about it I would like to change still. There's things that feel a little bit dated. But that's normal. That's just the process. And that's part of the things I can correct when I do the series. All right, I'm going all over the place here because so you you, you reference the the Netflix stuff and and I brought it up a, a second ago. Some of the shows that are out yep. there. What's that process been like for you? Uh, the you know the adaptation and and I guess the I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but the 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 conversion to the screen from you know stuff yeah. that you originally wrote just just for the purpose of a book. You know, I've loved it so far. I mean, the, we just had the Stranger came out in the end of January, and the Stranger was a seems to have been a very big hit. People really responded to it, and then they found Safe in the Five, which were on earlier. And if you remember the name Harlan Coben, if you just put it in the search engine, all the shows, including The Woods, which is coming out, will all pop up. So the other thing is Netflix.com backslash Harlan Coben brings you to all the shows um, as well. It's been a great relationship. Here's the thing, though. Um, you know, a book to me is a book and a TV series is a TV series. They should not be the same. Um, I don't want them to be slavishly devoted to my text. I think that that's, those are the worst adaptations of the ones you say have to be the same as my book because a book is, a, is not a visual medium. TV is. 
A book I can go internal. I can tell you what they're thinking. In TV, I have to show, not tell. There's a lot of differences between the two. And when people get upset, oh, you change this. Most of the time, I'm the one in favor of changing it. It's not, it's not Netflix pressure or anything like that. The other thing is I do a lot of my series overseas, which I enjoy doing. To me, it's a little bit like, um, you know, so The Woods, for example. The Woods, I, I wrote a hit song. Um, and perform a hit song. And now another band is going to cover it. In this case, a band from Poland. Well, I don't want them to sound the exact same as me. What's the fun in that? I want them to bring their culture, their sounds, their designs, their ideas to it, as long as it's still my song. And that seems to be what we're doing, what we're doing well with Netflix and why I think the shows are working so well and why people are finding them so gripping. Okay, I, I I hate to sound like an idiot here. I, was that a metaphor, or have you actually are you actually involved in songwriting? No, it's a metaphor. Okay, like all right. Book is like a, pretend the book is a yeah. song. Okay, right? okay. Right. I I just so wanted to just, just wanted right. to make sure. That's fine. Uh, okay. I did write one song for one of my French TV shows one time. The lyrics are in English, obviously, but uh, other than that, no, I don't I don't write songs. Okay. I didn't think so, but I just, I just, I, I'd be if if you did and I didn't ask about it, then I'd feel like an idiot. Uh, okay, so one of the things that I, I've always been so intrigued by is character development, and I think you, uh, you do such a, a tremendous job of that. And I, and I reference Deal Breaker. It's uh, that's the first book in in a long series in which the the main character is a, a guy named Myron Bolotar. He's a, a sports agent, but uh, detective, I guess, uh, uh, on the amateur side, if you will. And, and you know, I think it, there's two parts to this. There's one, the ability to develop characters within one story. But then when you've got a series, whether it's the Myron Bolotar series, and then you you kind of sprung off of that with the Mickey Bolotar series, and, and I, rem- I recommend all the books and, and all of them. But you there are certain things that, like, I can't imagine – eight years after you wrote Deal Breaker that you thought you were going to weave in this specific detail from a book four books prior with some maybe recurring character or even a star. I, how, so how do you, how do you organize? How, okay. How do you develop a character within a story? And then do you keep notes on little details that you can maybe play on in, in subsequent stories? Do you just happen to remember some of those details? Like, how do you get them to all tie together uh, years and years later? That's a good question. Um, no, I don't write notes. I don't really. I mean, each novel I plan out, you know, I know the beginning and the end of each novel, uh, which is enough. Um, but in terms of Myron Bolotar, which is most of the sports fans out there, are big Myron Bolotar readers, most of the athletes that I know that, that are uh, the pro ball players, the pro uh, the pro athletes are—they're always Myron Bolotar fans, which I love because Myron was a was an athlete like them, and I love and I really loved studying. Uh, like you say, he's sort of a private detective in the sports world. I mean, he, he gets to do some of the business end of it by being a sports agent, but in such a rich world, for murder and mayhem, and where emotions are raised to the tenth power, um, that I've loved doing it. But I've written Myron Bolotar. I've written eleven Myron Bolotar novels, and he's in three Mickey Bolotar novels. That's fourteen novels that that he's in. Uh, he starts off in the first book, he's around age 27, 28, and by the last one, he's in his mid-40s now. Um, and if, I don't know the end of that long novel. I look at each book as a chapter in a, in a longer novel, so I don't know how that's going to all end for Meyer. I, don't, I didn't know if he was going to stay with Jessica, who was his girlfriend in the first book. I didn't know if he and Wynn 
we'll always be friends. If he'd make Esperanza partner, I didn't know what's going to happen to his parents. And I still don't. Um, so each one of those things I kind of discover as, as I'm writing. And I often do forget and often make mistakes as readers are kind enough to point out. I had Wynn's hair parted on the left in one book and parted on the right in another book. So I, I do make mistakes. I don't want to go back and be slavishly looking at each one, looking for a, a solution to it. Um, but it just kind of, it's more of an organic process, I guess. The character uh, development's more of an organic process. Is there any, I, I, I sometimes I, I think there's symbolism in, in movies when I, I see this or books, and sometimes I think it's totally random. But in terms of choosing the names, was there any influence, or did you just kind of want to pick some random names? I think like with Wynn, who uh, you mentioned, it's Myron's best friend. I mean, he's got a very befitting name for the the preppy kind of character that you, you built him out to be. But like in terms of the specifics, or I don't know, any influence? Is it random? Like how much time do you spend on naming characters? It's a, it's a lot of different things. Lately, with smaller characters' names, I've, I, I have a, a charity that people donate to that particular charity. I'll use their name. Um, it fits somehow. I, I get to choose the characters, and you might be, you know, a crackhead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, you, so you, you don't know what you're going to be. Um, but that's one way. Sometimes a name just fits or doesn't fit. You know, like in person in life. So I had one book where the lead characters, I think, in fact, it was The Woods. Um, oh, no, it was The Innocent, where I had the guy had one first name. Uh, I think it was Jeff. And about midway through or maybe less, I said, he's just not a Jeff. It's not working for me. I changed his name to Will or Matt or something like that. Just the way the guy is, it's just not their name. So it has to sort of fit. With Myron, I wanted to have this sort of cool, this guy I anticipated as being very cool, an ex-athlete, good-looking, smooth with a kind of ner- nerdy name, and Myron was a kind of a good nerdy name. Ends up being Myron's not so cool, but um, and fits the name better than I, than I would have thought. And yes, exactly. Uh, Wynn's real name is Windsor Horn Lockwood III. You got the visual picture just from me saying that. So it all depends on who the character is and what you're doing, but no, it's, it's, there's no science to it. Uh, it's just a feel thing. Okay, so we, we've talked about the the uh, adaptation stuff. I, I think I read once that maybe there was something in the works to adapt uh, the the Myron Bolitar series to the screen. Is that something that still could happen? Was that something that was long gone in, in, in terms of getting it done? Or, or was there ever, I mean, was there strong interest in that? Uh, I, all of my books have been optioned a million times over by Hollywood and nothing happened. I mean, it's a, I could sit here for hours telling stories of who was attached to different projects, the biggest names, the smallest names, whatever. Hollywood's a very, very strange creature um, in terms of getting things made. There's still a very good chance that there'll be a Myron series. Uh, I'm working on one, uh, on, on the idea now, uh, but nothing to announce yet, as opposed to the, the, the shows that I've been doing with Netflix, which... I don't announce something anymore until it's it's there, it's being yeah. filmed, it's 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 ready to go. Um, it's just no, it's just no point. Myron's also harder to do. Um, if I mess up, like you know, we did a, a movie, Tell No One, a French movie, and and if we screwed it up, you know, that character's only in one book. I'm not quite as concerned in terms that way. Myron's very different because people have taken Myron so to heart. They're going to have to really accept the fact that it can't be the same as the book, and that. That bothers me a little bit more. I don't want you to see an actor when you when you think of Myron Bolotar that's not already in your head. I want Myron and Wynn 
um, to be in your head different from everybody else's because that's how it is. So I'm a little more cautious with, with Myron than I am with some other stuff because I intend to keep writing him. So I asked an author, oh, first of all, that's like the, the greatest news I think I've ever heard. Uh, that you know, they're, but I, I've asked an author once this question, and they said they didn't want to answer because they didn't want to cloud a, a reader's perception. So if that's the route you want to take with this, totally understand. But is there a particular actor who, when you think of any of the main characters from the Myron Bolotar series, you think this is the guy who would fit perfectly? Um, no. Of course not. No one's going to fit who's in my head. And for that matter, no one's fit it when I did any of the TV shows or any of the, the scripts that I've written for TV. But then what happens is once you see an actor, you kind of see where they um, can do it. So I did a TV show called Safe, and I had this very specific person, like a very specific mind, uh, physical features for this character in mind. But then when Michael C. Hall, who we all know from Dexter, wanted to play the role, all of a sudden, wow, yeah, that's who it is, that we can definitely make that work and do that. And that's part of what an actor is supposed to bring to it. it it's that the, the difference between a book and a TV. A book is me giving you something and then you creating it in your head. You, you're the actor, you're the producer, you're the director along with me. When you're doing a TV adaptation, the, you know, I'll create the character of Tom in the TV show Safe, but then Michael C. Hall is going to take it in directions that I don't necessarily know. And that's what makes it either richer or poorer for that reason. And then you'll look at it and you'll come up with your own sort of perception. That's sort of the difference between TV and why TV's fun. It's a collaboration. When I write a book, I'm completely on my own. All right. I got a couple more questions. I really appreciate the time, Harlan. Uh, is there something in the writing process or the, the creation process you most enjoy that, that even to this day you still find a ton of joy in, from the, the, the creation side, not necessarily the impact it might have on a, on a reader, but just your process, uh, a part of it that you still really, really enjoy. Um, it's always been the same, I think. It's no more or less enjoyment. Uh, there's a saying, I first heard it on The Odd Couple from Oscar Madison, but a lot of people, including Dorothy Park, have been credited with this quote, and that is, I don't like writing, I like having written. So I don't necessarily know if, if I'm in the throes of writing, the time disappears very quickly, and that's a wonderful feeling. But it's really about what the creation and having product, so to speak, when I'm done. If I spend all day staring at my computer screen, and at the end of it, I don't have one more, I don't have any words, I feel terrible. If I have a lot of words, I feel great. Now, it's a long philosophical question, is that because... I wrote better that day or because I have something to show for it. If I know friends like say, Oh, I love to paint. I love painting. Painting is my favorite thing. I love to paint. So at the end of the day, if that canvas ends up being blank, would you still say you loved it? Or is it about what you actually created? It's a, it's a long philosophical question. So it's hard for me to say, but I can say it probably hasn't changed for me. I still really want to create something that's going to move you. And it really is about the person, the audience, not in terms of trying to, you know, in a, in a bad way, kowtow or please you. But if I write something and you don't read it, I don't exist as a writer. That's not writing to me. That's therapy. Um, but it's your reaction that really does make it something that's creative. You paint a painting and you hang it in a room and no one ever sees it. doesn't exist as a painting. The Berkeley tree in the woods, the tree falls, doesn't make a sound, no one hears it. 
I need for people to, to watch and to hear it and get their reaction. That's the great joy for me. And that to me is creation. I, I read that, I think it was that at Amherst, you were classmates with Dan Brown, who's another accomplished author. What what sort of relationship did you have with him? And then I guess as a sidebar, uh, is there another author who maybe more than any other has been a, a strong influence of yours? Well, Dan Brown and I were fraternity brothers. He was uh, two years behind me at Amherst, but we knew each other and we were in the same um, fraternity. Neither one of us seemed to know much about writing back then so uh or you didn't necessarily predict dan was seemed to be more into music at the time and i had no idea what i was going to do i was on my way to law school in fact probably um and and we remain friends uh to this day i was one of the first readers of the da vinci code um and i'm very proud of the work he's done although it does piss me off that i can be listed in the top 20 or 30 best-selling authors in the world but i'm not even number one of my own college fraternity <laughs> i'm a little pissed off at dan about that, about that, uh, he sells a heck of a lot more books. Um, so yeah, so that the answer that there's so many writers, but the thing, the key actually is not necessarily have you don't have to even be influenced just by books. I'm influenced by Ed Hopper paintings. I'm influenced by Springsteen songs. I'm influenced by Hitchcock movies. Um, so I think the key, more of the key is is to just open your eyes and and see the world around you, and 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 try to form stories. Um, every person that I see, you know, right now this, the world's going through all this turmoil and things like that. And I try with people I agree with or disagree with to always remember that every human being you meet has hopes and dreams. You think about that for a second. Stop. That woman in front of you online at the supermarket is driving you crazy. That guy who just cuts you off in traffic, whatever. They have hopes and dreams. And what are those hopes and dreams? And it's a good way of being empathetic and thinking about life. It's also a good way of creating stories in your head well, why are they here? How did they end up like this? What's going on with them? I mean, it helps, you know, to look at people that way. All right, last thing, Harlan. You referenced your charity earlier. I, I, I'd, again, be remiss if I didn't ask you to share what the charity is, uh, what it's all about, and, and maybe how people listening can can uh, contribute. Well, it's not necessarily contributing. I, I have a, fa- a foundation, which is just my personal foundation, where I then can, can divvy out money to the charities I find uh, are worthwhile. Um, and so what we've done is, if you, if you go to charity at harlancoben.com, if you write to that charity at harlancoben.com, or go to my webpage, uh, or check out the back, back of any of my book in the acknowledgement page, you'll see a list of character names that um, are people who donated money and, 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 now, and as a gift to somebody. Most of our charities are it's never anything political. It's usually charities to help children. My wife is a pediatrician. So our biggest thing is probably medical care um, for children in need. Well, there you go. That was really cool for me. And if you're a fan of Harlan Coben's work, hopefully that was really cool for you. And if you're not familiar with Harlan, hopefully you enjoyed his story, his perspectives, and what he had to share in just a sec, episode 38. Be on the lookout later this week. I'll release Just a Sec episode 39 with the Metroplex's own NBA star, Miles Turner. He's from the Metroplex, plays for the Pacers, before that went to the University of Texas. And let me tell you, he is a really, really impressive athlete and young man. His story, what he's overcome, and the way he connects with people and he uses his platform for good, I was blown away. If you heard my conversation 
uh, earlier in this series with Josh Howard and the way Josh is such a giving person now. A lot of what Josh demonstrated, I think Miles Turner has similar qualities. That's coming out later this week. As always, like, subscribe, comment, and just share if you feel so inclined the link to either this interview, the channel, whatever the case, I'd really, really appreciate it. Until then, stay safe, be well, and we'll talk soon.